Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, with another episode of the podcast where people talk to me about the five things from their life that they'd like to preserve in a time capsule, four things they cherish, and one they rather regret, and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. The guest doing just that in this episode is the uniquely marvellous comedian Milton Jones, whose one-liners and puns have won him fans all over the world. He's a regular guest on such shows as Mock the Week, Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow and Live at the Apollo, and performs live at the Comedy Store, the Edinburgh Festival and all clubs and theatres in between. He's written and performed shows on BBC Radio 4, such as Another Case of Milton Jones and Thanks a Lot, Milton Jones. Most of the shows have the words Milton Jones in them. We chatted with each other remotely. By that, I don't mean we didn't really engage with each other. He was in his home near Richmond, and I was in mine near Tunbridge Wells. That sort of remotely. Anyway, this is that conversation. I'd love a pun. <laughs> I, I just love a play on words. You know? it's, it's a weird thing in that some people, it's there, they, it resonates. Yeah. But I can still look into a crowd and there'll be, there'll be just two or three going, what? <laughs> what? In What's fact, he laughing at? In fact, that was one of the most difficult heckles I've ever had. Yeah. Is someone shouting, these are just words. <laughs> <laughs> What can you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm stumped. <laughs> they there's are. No, there's no way around that. But they don't mean the same when I say them as you thought they were going to mean. Do yeah, you see what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, brilliant. So, uh, Milton, it's lovely to see you, and we're going to talk about five things you want to put into a time capsule. So what's your first item? Well, I was thinking if 
I was making or someone else was making a film of my life, which mm-hmm. no one ever would because there's not enough jeopardy or no car chases or anything like that. <laughs> but the opening scene would probably be a six-year-old waiting for register um, and the teacher going down the register and saying so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And they're all saying, yes, yes, yes. And then it got to me and the big gap. And then I'd say, no. <laughs> and there'd be a gap, another gap. And then the whole class would start laughing. <laughs> and you'd close in on my eyes and it'd be like a sparkle. Mm. That's the first time I remember trying anything ever. That is the moment where I thought, hang on a minute. It doesn't have to be straight. The addiction of laughter started. Yeah. And I think if you ask any comic, what's the best bit of doing what we do? It's that trying out a new thing for the first time, whether it be a joke or a script, and getting that audience visceral reaction the first time. Yeah. And you go, yes, I knew that would work. (laughs) Now, what I'm doing is ignoring all the other things that don't work, you know, the times you try it. And, uh, but it is that little bit of comedy heroin that sneaks into your veins. And each time I've done a new Edinburgh show or a new tour or a new radio series, it's that moment of going, yeah, that does work. Now, 30 years on, I'm always amazed that I don't always get it right. I think I've got better, mm. but it's not foolproof. No. I often think I've written the best thing ever and it's really not but then something I throw away works. But it's that moment of woof. Yes, and the strange thing is that often you will write something or you think of a line, and to you it's as clear as a bell. Mm. You know exactly why it's funny. You can say from the structure of it, the way it's placed, the way it's said, the words in it are all perfect words. They're funny words. Yes. And you say it to people and they go, what? Then you're dead because you've got to explain why it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And once you start explaining, there is no funniness to be had (laughs) at all. So how did your teacher react to that? Well, I I can't even remember. I know the class laughed. Mm. And I think I was probably then in the haze of wonder. And when I meet people I was at primary school with, you know, years later, and not having moved very far in where I live, that's quite possible for me to go down Richmond High Street and see someone I was at primary school with. (laughs) The verdict is that I was quite quiet but I did say funny things when I spoke and I I don't remember it like that but so did you feel noisy yes I was a very quiet child and I think I found it I needed to make it count when I did speak (laughs) Hmm. and it was also a deflection mechanism I'm sure of you know turning it around so that people looked somewhere else yeah yeah um, because I didn't feel comfortable under a spotlight so probably what started out as some kind of weird psychological tick Mm. gradually I went professional in the end (laughs) (laughs) and uh, that was the first time I remember getting a laugh when you were at secondary school did you then suddenly become the joker or or were you still that person who just occasionally dropped little pearls in Uh, again I was I think I was very quiet at secondary school until I got to the sixth form Mm. and for some reason I sort of came out of myself and started doing drama and in fact talking to a teacher or two years later they thought a new boy has joined the school really in the sixth form. And some of them weren't aware of my existence <laughs> before that. And uh, What changes in the sixth form? For me, I was at an all-boys school, and in the sixth yeah. form it went mixed. Right. That changed my persona, yeah. I remember it clearly. Yes. Suddenly there are girls there, and so I became someone else. 
Well, it was an all-boys school I went to. It's not an all-boys school anymore, but I think probably mixing with girls was socially was probably one of the things. Mm. And just working out that it didn't have to be an academic route that I went down. And also my brother was a year ahead of me, no, a year behind me, sorry, Mm. and was also brilliant at everything. And I found that I was mediocre at everything. (laughs) But if I played the fool, people remembered who you were. Yeah, yeah. And so that became, you know, my default position. Yes. I mean, Uh, why would he do that? He was good at everything. Yes. Whereas if you're, I don't know, taking it back further to primary school, if you're not that good at running, but you drop your trousers while you're running in the sports day. People remember who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So do the police. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It hasn't worked out in my adult life. Not a good (laughs) idea down the high street. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's how I got into it. But then I thought, you see, when I was growing up, being a comedian was a a different sort of thing. It was guys with bow ties and telling mother-in-law jokes. And that's what I saw on television. And it wasn't until Saturday Night Live and that kind of thing came along that you suddenly thought, oh, there's a different way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But I was already at Middlesex Poly, as it was then, uh, doing drama. So the aim was to be an actor, which, yes. I mean, in a way yes. you are an actor, but it's people think of you as a, as a comedian. There is an overlap. I think you have to be able to sell something in a performance way. But yes, I, so I wanted to be a comic actor, but then I tried to get an equity card remember those, <laughs> by doing cabaret slots as a stand-up. And very, very slowly they began to take off. And I wasn't, I did a few TIE things and odd Shakespeare things, but yeah. nothing very much, nothing to pay enough. And so gradually I began to do stand-up. And also that coincided with stand-up becoming a bigger entity in itself. You know, when I started, it was alternative comedy. So that would have been what, the late 80s? 89 was the first open spot I did. Yeah, so it was just starting to take off then. Uh, up yes. until that point, there'd been hardly any venues you could perform at. Exactly. Just a few in London, and that was it. Yes. And suddenly, they opened up everywhere. Yes, and it became... I think when I started, the official figures were that more people went to Speedway than <laughs> went to comedy. <laughs> but that all changed, you know. And now, 25, 30 years later, those same guys I was with in alternative comedy are the mainstream, are the guys on Saturday night. You know, mm. and I suppose in a way we need some students to break away and form something else now and become alternative. Yes, which most of us won't find funny at all. No, um, I do remember. I think earlier than that, before it had happened in this country, I went to Australia, and on the way back we went to Los Angeles and we spent a couple of days in Los Angeles, and we went to the comedy store and watched these extraordinary stand-up comedians, all amazing, in comparison to the sort of thing we were seeing in Britain. But actually, they became incredibly dull after about three performers. They were all doing exactly the same thing. Yes. Do you feel that, to an extent, stand-up has gone down that road, that actually the real individuals... I would place you as one of them, as one of the people who sort of ploughed your own furrow. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of people who follow the same path, in a way. Sure, and I think it's probably harder to start now or within the last ten years because a lot of it, you inevitably look like someone else, because it's very hard to be original now. Yes. Um, Much like, I suppose, I don't know much about music, but it feels musically it's quite hard to be, it's harder to be more original now, Mm. because it always sounds a bit like something that happened 30 years ago. Yeah. The other thing is that, a thing I often quote is that 
stand-up comedy is like learning a musical instrument, except you do all your practice in public. Quite. And a lot of funny people give up. Well, of course, now the audience would expect them to be professional, as it were, expect them to be yes. proficient. And you yes. only become proficient by performing in front of people and making mistakes. Exactly. And conversely, a few unfunny people have kept going <laughs> and suddenly turned a corner by yes. sheer persistence, actually. And, you know, good for them. Mm. The other thing is that because there is so much more on television now, audiences expect the standard that they see on TV. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, there were acts that were like two out of three times they would do really well. But that's not a possibility now. No. They have to be bulletproof. But I think there's less room for mavericks. I have to say, I do miss those performers. There were some mm. extraordinary performers when stand-up first started, in the you know, alternative stand-up started. Yeah. There were people that you, you couldn't actually tell whether they were standing up trying to be funny or whether they were standing mm. up trying to be serious. Yes. And that's always exciting to watch. And even people like, I don't know if you remember, Chris Lynham, who would end up sticking a firework up his backside and that would be his big finish. <laughs> That's it. We've all seen stuff that is technically good, but you've sort of seen or heard it somewhere before. Mm. I remember going to the Montreal Festival years ago, and it was it was a bit depressing, actually, because all the Americans had their acts down to seven minutes, and it was perfect, but it was just lifeless. That's exactly what I was talking about, the comedy store. That The first mm. one that came on, you went, wow, why isn't this person incredibly famous? They're so good. Mm. And then the next person came on, and they were just as good, but the same. Yeah. Hey, hi there. Hey, can I borrow a cigarette? I'm sorry, I left mine in the machine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very punchable, a lot of them. Anyway, well, I think that's um, a great thing for any child, that moment of discovering that you can be funny. You're going to have a happy life, I think, if you can look yes. at things and see the funny side of them. Absolutely. And uh, there's nothing worse than someone who doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter is a, it's an air brick in life, and it's really important to have one, otherwise you will explode in some way, especially if you're English. The <laughs> <laughs> British, in that you're suppressing lots of emotions to begin with anyway. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, people sometimes ask me, why is there a big cabaret circuit in Britain? But actually in France or Italy, not so much. They have circuses and broad comedy. Yes. Mime and, you know. But in terms of people speaking into microphones quickly, it doesn't really happen. I think that's because they get out a lot of their emotion anyway. If you'll excuse the metaphor, it's a bit like me being a prostitute and going in and getting out all that stuff that's pent up inside people. I mean, not so much my style of comedy, but I just think there's a lot of pressure that people don't vent until they go out. And they need an excuse to do that. They need a comedy blowjob. <laughs> yes, that could be the title of my new show. <laughs> <laughs> It'll sell. It'll definitely sell. <laughs> yes, probably to the wrong type of audience. Yes, I, I know. <laughs> okay, all right, Milton, we shall put you saying no to the teacher yeah. that moment and realising, hang on a minute, I've just been funny. <laughs> that goes into the time capsule. That's your first item. Excellent. Lovely. So what's number two? Number two is a thing, and it's... Um, I'm lucky to own a 45-year-old VW bay window camper van. Oh. And we've had it since 1993, so a long time. Yeah. And I have three kids who are all in their 20s now, and they've sort of grown up in it. 
they were allowed out as well, but um, <laughs> it was is emblematic of holidays and us cutting ourselves off and just going somewhere. I mean, it's, it's blue and white and it's old, so we call her Mother Teresa. That's the name of the <laughs> camper. And uh, just the smell as well. It just means holidays and going away. Brilliant. And obviously it's just a vehicle. It's just a van. But um, it's sort of what it symbolises. Um, my wife, is an, Carol, is an illustrator. and Obviously I do comedy. And it feels like um, sometimes there are no weekends if we're busy. And we work from home to a large extent. So it has been over the years really important just to have a space where we just go away and this is just us. And in the early days, it was camping in France and Wales and places. Mm. Latterly, it's been more like going to festivals, maybe <laughs> that I've actually been performing at. And, uh, yeah. you know, Reading and Latitude and obscure Irish festivals or something. But so many memories. And I mean, I actually don't use it enough now to justify having it. But... It's like putting down a member of the family. I can't, I couldn't actually, well, depends who, but um, I can't really get rid of it. And it sits on our drive. So, How many um, bits have been replaced over the years? There's not much of the original left, but it's in good nick. Is it split screen? It's not split screen, it's bay window, but mm. it's the only car I've ever bought that's gone up in value. Yes. <laughs> well, I feel very stupid because when I first left university, we did a tour around Britain of a review we had a fantastic time. We drove all over the countryside, right up into the north of Scotland mm. for about six weeks, doing a different venue every night. And we did the whole thing in a VW camper that we had bought outside of Australia House, which is where you used to yes. buy them in. Yeah. And at the end of the tour, nobody had anywhere to put this camper van. So we basically just took it to, I think, West Brown Avenue or something and parked it and left the keys in it and walked away. Ah. I've always regretted it. Yes, well, it would be worth something now. More than the value of it, I would love to own something like that. I just know exactly what you're saying when you've got something like that, that when you get in it and you start to drive, even if you're going to the shops, the temptation must be, no, let's carry on to France. Yes, because we can. I mean, you you could stop by the side of the road. And uh, also, it's it's not fast. It's not... What it reminds me of is... Do you remember when you were little, making a house under the table, yes. camping under the table in, <laughs> in, the, in the living room? Yes. It just feels like that. This is what we're all doing now. We're playing this game. But you could wake up in the morning and go onto the beach. You know, it was great. And, and you know, when kids are little, they've got so much junk that a big van to just stuff things in <laughs> is, is what you need. I think 13 children is the most I've had in it, cousins and things. Um, not at all unsafe. No, no not so Well, when I bought it, it didn't even have safety belts in the back. But I'm not a petrol head in any way. I wouldn't know how to fix anything. I've managed to find guys who know what they're doing. But it's also a bit like having a dog in the park in that it starts conversations. Yeah, I bet. You know, you just pull up and people say, well, the trouble is I get experts talking to me as if I know stuff, which, you know, always goes wrong. But people will just start talking to you and you'll have a conversation. They say, oh, I was brought up in one and my dad had one and we went blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, It's just a nice thing to have. Did you use it when you were touring early on? I have done, but it's so slow and cold (laughs) um, that it's it only really works as a family thing to go to festivals. Yeah. We've got an awning that sticks on the side. So, you know, you can have multiple guests, as it were. Mm. and a pop-up top so you can fit 
We used to be able to fit all five of us in it, but it's probably a bit tight now. But yes, it's very much one of the family. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I'm very envious. I won't be leaving it in Westbourne Grove with the keys. Uh, That's for sure. Damn, damn. Okay. (laughs) All right, well, Mother Teresa then. In she goes. Bless her. Yes. She's in the time capsule. Lovely. So, number three. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Milton very shortly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Milton Jones would like to put into his time capsule. Number three, um, I was thinking about this, and it could be several things, but Richmond Theatre. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes, I've played there. It's a a lovely theatre, but I was, when I was 18, I was an usher there selling ice creams, and uh, it was... My first experience of theatre was handing small children to Lionel Blair in a pantomime. <laughs> and I, I spent a year there just watching everything. And they had Peter Euston off did a show there. And I remember Raymond Burr. Do you remember mm. Ironside? Yeah. He did a show there. And, you know, lots and lots of really interesting stuff. But anyway, 20 years later, I came back and did a show there myself. And I felt like saying, I told you I'd be back to do it. (laughs) Of course, no one on the staff was the same. So there was no point in doing that. But it just feels like uh, an ambition achieved, if you like. uh, Not that I consciously set out to do it, but just the full circle. And it sort of leaves me feeling grateful, I suppose, that I was able to do that. And that I think when you're going from job to job, it's quite easy to be obsessed with the next job. Yes. And occasionally you look back and you think, wow, I worked with that person or I've come a long way. I I was talking to Hugh Dennis once and he said something quite profound because someone asked him, what's your ambition? And he said to not end up bitter. 
<laughs> and I know exactly what he means because I'm sure the same, you know, people who are very famous and successful, but actually it doesn't take too long for them to start talking about the job they didn't get or what they want to happen next, you know. Or that they're not as famous as they were. Yes. If you hanker after fame, it will always come and go. So if it's the be-all and end-all of your life, then it's going to be the bane of your life, I think. Exactly. Why don't Channel 4 phone me anymore or whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I can see how people get sucked into it because we've got a sort of job where our identity can be based in what we do as opposed to who we are. Mm. So Richmond Theatre, it was, you know, I've done, so I've done a TV show that had my picture on the back of the theatre wall and, and stuff like that where part of me just goes, yeah, that feels good to have done that. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff since. And the danger is that the goalposts move by the time you've got to where you want it to be and you forget to be thankful or appreciate what has changed. Did you ever get to go backstage when you were working front of house? Very briefly, you know, to deliver messages or stuff yeah. like that, but not... But I'm sure it didn't change. Oh, no, yeah. That backstage has always been the same. Tiny, tiny. Tiny, tiny place, yeah. Yes, and I, I sort of think, how did they get Peter Eustonoff to put up with this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And you realise, of course, that he was used to it. Yeah. He'd played theatres before, and that's what theatres mm. are like, no matter how glitzy and gorgeous they are. Front of house, yeah. backstage, it's very unusual for a place to be glamorous at all. The old style of that, having three, you know, God's circle stalls, that's a lot of people near the stage. And I play so many civic halls or <laughs> purpose-built buildings that are not as good. But you have, I think it's 850 people within a few yards of you mm. who can see your face. <laughs> and some of the bigger rooms we play, they may as well be watching a video at home. Yes, or in fact often are watching a video on stage. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that throws me rather is the rake of the stage. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm not good with um, vertigo. And if the rake, you know, the slope down towards the audience, mm. I feel like I'm falling down a hole often. Right. I sort of, you know, wobble um, <laughs> on, on those old stages. But they are great. They are great. They are I great. Them. I mean, it, you wonder why anybody would change the design of places like that. That's a Matcham theatre, isn't it? Yeah. Just beautiful. And you're right, mm. from the stage, people don't realise it, I think, when because most people's experience of theatres would be from the audience. But when you stand on the stage of those places, you're right, everything seems close. Every seat seems reasonably close. And you can hear individual laughs and heckles as well. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's just a, a lovely experience. This is what I imagined theatre would be like. Okay, well, I'm going to put that picture of you backstage at the Richmond Theatre. We're going to put yeah. that because I, I think, you know, it would be unfair to put the whole... Well, actually, I could put the whole theatre in at the moment. Nothing's happening there. <laughs> the truth, yeah. <laughs> we might as well put it all in, put the whole thing in, yeah. and then we'll, we'll yeah. look after it until they need it again. All right, Very lovely. Good. So we've got you saying no to the teacher, and we've got your lovely camper van, and we've yep. got, well, the Richmond Theatre. So what else do you want to put in the time capsule? Um, well, another experience, really, in that I'm lucky enough to be patron of a charity called Chance for Childhood. Right. And it basically has um, schemes for kids in, it's mostly Africa at the moment. They had one in South America. It's a mixture of things for disabled kids, teaching, deaf kids, um, 
the one we went out, so I took my wife and my daughter, we went out to Uganda mm. and they have a school for former child soldiers oh my word. in Uganda. And um, I mean, just a different world in every sense. And there were about 80 child soldiers there. And you could see just to look in their eyes, which ones had come in recently. Oh God. And they, you, I mean, I won't spell it out, but they, they'd been through terrible stuff, you know, lived in the bush um, had been kidnapped from school and forced to fight other people. And then also when they finally came back to their homes, many of their relatives were dead, but also the community wouldn't accept them because they'd been killing people, basically. Yeah. And uh, so the charity had set up an education and work project. And these kids were like anything from 12 to 18. And I was brought in <laughs> and told, They'd been told I was a great comedian, which is <laughs> thanks a lot. Kind of, uh, normally, I would be happy with that intro, but in the context, <laughs> it was a nightmare because they expected me to be able to make them laugh for an hour or whatever. God. Now, tough crowd, yeah, uh, because a they didn't speak English much, <laughs> and b they'd all been traumatized, and you know they were about to be even more traumatized, so. I managed to bluff it for 10 minutes, pulling faces and asking questions and, you know, just trying to think of everything I could. You know, obviously complicated wordplay wasn't what was needed. No. Anyway, it, it went down to, a, I said, just ask me some questions about stuff. It was fine. They were all very smiley and glad to be where they were. And um, we had sort of some interaction and that was much easier. But then a sort of one, what became a sort of seminal moment in my life not so much at the time, but looking back on it, one of them put his hand up and said, please tell us all the difficulties you've had in becoming a comedian. <laughs> and just looking out at the audience, thinking anything in my life doesn't compare to the what you've been through in the last few months, let alone, mm. you know, the parking was bad in Croydon once. Or, <laughs> uh, these are children. Yeah, and... I think it's easy as a comedian, you know, people say to you often as a performer, oh, I couldn't do what you do. And, oh, you're so brave doing that. Now, there is an element of which you go, yeah, I am. Hmm. Not, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had the nerve to do it. But in that moment, looking back on it, I just thought I haven't actually been through real trouble at all. And also, I mean, privilege is talked about a lot these days, you know, mm. whether it's white or class or I've just been so able to do stuff because of other things. But when you look at what I'm doing, I haven't suffered at all, really. I've been a tiny little bit brave in certain contexts, which the worst thing that can happen is that no one laughs. Yes. <laughs> and, and you could always go and get a job in a bank. Yeah. So it just for that moment and looking back puts everything in context. Yeah, you know there was no there was he wasn't trying to catch me out or anything. No, no, of course not. I just look back on it as being, yeah, that you just need to have some perspective. <laughs> but it's interesting that his perspective was that what he'd been through was, in a way, normal, and you'd been the brave one. Yes, and so I had to stutter and make excuses and. So you do have to be brave, but to be honest, it's not as brave as you have to be in other circumstances. No. So then you're sort of, um, once you get involved with those sort of things, that's it, you can't you can't leave them, can you? No, uh, it's a strange thing, because you're also conscious that there is such a lot of it 
you can only deal with a tiny part or offer to help in a, such a small way that you, it's almost too much, that you can't, you can't quite cope in your head. You know, there's the whole white saviour now thing, thing mm. as well, which I sort of agree with. But then, you know, comic relief will go in and raise millions. And yes, someone might be flown in for an afternoon and cry with the children and come out, but then a lot of money gets made. Yes, and often those people are dramatically changed by that experience. Mm. And it makes you realise how lucky you are for lots of things. Yeah, yeah. I think there's nothing worse than someone who demands things by right and uh, just gratitude. I think the more mature you are, the more grateful you are. I think, not that I manage it at all most of the time, but just to go, most of this wasn't my doing, okay? (laughs) Indeed. All right, we will put Chance for Childhood into the time capsule and there will be a link to it. Oh, sure, yeah. So if anybody would like to donate, we'd be delighted. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Milton, we've got one final thing to put in, and really this is something that you want to get rid of. Yeah. Well, actually, I was pleasantly surprised going through in my head how few things there were. I mean, a few things occurred, like um, the song Let Me Entertain You by Robbie Williams. (laughs) In that... Oh, please pick uh, it. Please pick (laughs) it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm not sure I like the songs anyway, but... When I used to work a lot for um, some clubs called Jonglers, they played that every single show before the show. <laughs> and this was the last, the last track before the show began. Uh, and I must have done hundreds of shows for them, for which I was very grateful and they paid the mortgage. Mm. However, you know when you do a show and there's a song in it, and forever after when you hear that song... <laughs> <laughs> yes. It brings you out in goosebumps or (laughs) whatever it was. Yes, the emotion just before. That's what it does to me. Whether it comes on in the car or something, I just shiver. Because I've done so many Christmas shows where you look out and there's a table of men dressed like Elvis Presley and there's (laughs) another stag knight over there who are dressed as Vikings. Oh, And head knight over here. None of whom are facing the stage all of whom have jugs of beer, and you know this is going to be carnage. The Mm. best thing you can say is they won't remember it. (laughs) But you will. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I I remember once doing a show in Portsmouth, and it was wall-to-wall navy. They'd all come off boats. No women. And before we went on, people had been thrown out for spitting. (laughs) And it's not about art at that point. It's about crowd control. Yes, survival. Yeah, survival. And uh, probably the person organising it would say, do as long as you like. Go, no. <laughs> I'm doing two seconds longer than I need to. Yeah, so that, that that is, I mean, that is something that I, you know, it's not Robbie Williams' fault, really, but it just brings me out in a very bad reaction. <laughs> I can't be doing with that. I mean, that that is my flippant choice. Yes. Um, to be honest, my more serious, we talked seriously already but the last 10 years my mother's been suffering from dementia and uh, I hadn't really engaged with dementia before and she's still alive but she's doesn't know who she is or where she is Uh, and it's a bit like watching someone die in quicksand I think mm. in that they get slightly worse very slowly and it's just been a very painful degeneration knowing Almost the worst thing is of what she would think of it. 
how horrified she would be. And, you know, she was a lovely, kind, gentle person. And really, her personality has changed. And she isn't who she was. I mean, it also reminds me of a headless chicken in the sense of the body can stay alive after the person is gone. Yes. And I, I looked down at her hands the other day, which I recognised entirely. Then I looked at her face and she was looking straight through me. And, I mean, she can say some funny things sometimes. I mean, I went in the other week and I said, do you know who I am? And she said, no. I said, Milton. And she said, oh, that's my name as well. I thought, oh, no, we can have a weird conversation now. <laughs> or she would say something quite sensible and then I'll say, really? And she said, I wasn't talking to you. And I'm the only person in the room, you know. Or, um, it, lots of stuff that is painful to watch, really. Mm. Now, maybe something good comes out of it in that I get motivated to do something as best I can. And I've met so many great doctors and carers who I would never have met in a million years otherwise. And especially with the COVID business and knowing how much they're paid to do literally an awful job but with they do it with pleasantness and patience. That has altered me to some degree, mm. which is a good thing. But even so, medicine for the body is way in advance for medicine for the brain. Yes. My aunt and my uncle both had dementia, and it was, um, it was very sad. I remember my uncle, um, you could see he thought he was a prisoner in his own home, and he was desperate mm. to get home to be with his parents in London mm. and couldn't understand why these strangers were locking the door and putting bars on the window. Yeah. His one thought was, how can I get out of here? Yes. And that's very sad. No, it's horrible to see their distress. And also, mm. the other thing is, it's sad for the grandchildren, you know, to have that as a memory. You know, that was grandma. Yes. But it was nothing like who she was. It feels unfair for someone who's, you know, led a good life. Both of my parents died quite quickly and very suddenly. Mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a terrible shock, of course. Mm. But for me, one of the great compensations of it is that I'm aware that my father was starting to say, what's it, more thingy, um, what was I saying? Mm. More and more as he was getting older. And it's a great compensation for me to know that he didn't have to go through that, which I think he would have done if he'd lived. I feel for you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, loads of people are going through and will continue as, as people get older. Who knows, we may be for the chop ourselves, but it's just a, a pain I hadn't really... I understand physical pain. I understand sudden death, but it, lingering death is a horrible thing. Mm. Well, thank you for talking about that. And I think it's important that people are aware of uh, that the NHS is not just having to deal with this terrible virus but also so many other things. And these people really deserve our support, not just by going out and clapping. I could never quite understand why they stopped the clapping. Mm. It seemed to me a wonderful community thing and something that even when we weren't locked in our homes, we should have continued to do. And strangely emotional as well. Yes, it was marvellous, I think. And we did have one experience. I live in a quiet street with a sort of a twitten, an alleyway at the top of it. And we all came out and we were clapping. And as we clapped a young woman in nurse's uniform came down through the alleyway and she started to cry. And I said to her, are you okay? And she said, I've just come off the COVID ward. She said, and she just said, thank you. Mm. And it was just, oh my God, it was beautiful. Yes. But I, you know, rather than clap, 
let's fucking pay them properly. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing like question time or something like that to send you over the edge. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, well, you know, the, the, the sort of mealy-mouthed platitudes that come out. Or even conservative politicians getting rounds of applause from audiences <laughs> with the cheap, you know, nurses do a great job. Well, yes. Well, we're in agreement there, Milton. Yeah. We shall now go to the pub, book a table <laughs> for six, just me and you, and rant. <laughs> yes. But um, it's been lovely to talk to you, and uh, it's very sweet of you to share those things with me. Thank you. No, it's sped by. Sped by. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Milton Jones. Sweet man, isn't he? This podcast is available to subscribe to on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually get your podcasts from. But you probably know that as you're listening to it on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, unless you're listening where you usually get your podcasts from. Still, if you've got the time to listen to me waffle on about where you can find the thing you've already found, you probably have the time to rate us and leave a review. Thank you very much. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule. You can't miss us. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. I hope you can join us again, but remember, if you do, you can always fast-forward through the bits you don't need especially the bit at the end where I state the bleeding obvious. This has been my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and it tends to be light during the day and dark at night. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.